Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte clear liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Hello, everybody. I'm Lou Dobbs, and this is The Great America Show. Welcome all to Truth, Justice, and the American Way. Today we begin with the sinister, treasonous exploits of the snake rhino, Senator John Cornyn of Texas, doing the bidding of the master rhino, Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell, who of course is on loan to the Republican Party and the U.S. Senate from the Chinese Communist Party and the People's Republic of China. The iniquitous Cornyn and McConnell have just sold out the American people to the Marxist Dems, and in my opinion... In doing so, they've undercut the Republican chances of winning the midterm elections. In less than a week, they've engineered legislation to give amnesty to illegal immigrants, which will attract millions more illegals across our wide-open southern border, add billions of dollars to cartel coffers, and assure the cartel's control of the border for years to come. Assuring cartel smuggling of more deadly drugs, hundreds of thousands more American deaths from fentanyl and opiate deaths, more sex trafficking of American children and women, Cornyn and McConnell have joined with the Marxist Dems and this puppet president to devastate life in America, the American way of life. Ask yourself, what would the Chinese do first if they were to successfully invade America? They would destroy our Constitution our rights, no freedom of speech or assembly. They would take our guns. They would deny every American his or her rights to legal due process. The First, Second, and Fourth Amendments, gone. Our Bill of Rights, no more. Cornyn and McConnell have handed our rights to bear arms and due process to the Marxist Dems, and they've destroyed any semblance of our sovereignty with amnesty for those millions who've crossed our borders with impunity and those millions sure now to follow. Our country will soon not belong to American citizens if we allow Cornyn and McConnell's sellout to stand. We'll soon find out if Americans are courageous enough to stand up for this country. Unfortunately, there are signs that we may not be the same as those who founded and who've defended America and Americans for two and a half centuries. We've just learned, for example, that the Uvalde, Texas police chief lied in almost every material way about why his department failed to act to save the lives of 19 schoolchildren and two of their teachers. The tragedy in Uvalde is the deadliest school shooting since Sandy Hook a decade ago. Joining us now to take up these latest developments in Uvalde is Jack Posobiec, host of Human Events Daily, and Jack, it is great to have you with us. Let's turn to the hearings about what happened in Uvalde and the findings of the Texas Department of Public Safety about the outrageous failure of Uvalde's police department to prevent 
this tragic loss of life. Well, that's right, Lou, and I'm, I'm watching these hearings the way everyone else is, and we've got the, the Texas Department of Public Safety is making their first public uh, address on this, a new hearing, new testimony from the director uh, that's come forward on top of all this into their review of the police department's response to this horrific event, because, and I think everyone agrees that, you know, obviously this, is, this horrific crime is something that we didn't want to happen, but there are now questions coming up of why was it that it appears as the police officers waited up to a full hour before breaching that room when they knew there was an active shooter in, again, Texas, active shooter, crazed gunman inside the schoolhouse full of children. We're now hearing that this chief of police, Pete Arredondo, who was the on-scene commander there, essentially played a role in uh, issuing what amounted to be almost a stand down order and initially had told people he had uh, really lied to the media he said first that there was that they had in, officers had engaged the gunmen outside well they looked at the surveillance footage and they couldn't find any evidence of that well then he said well no it wasn't outside it was actually inside and they uh, went to open the doors the new that they're reviewing the surveillance footage lou there's no footage of officers going into these doors and said what we're starting to see in drips and drabs and leaks that are coming out in this investigation of officers, and it's 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 very hard to watch, especially anyone who I've got, I've got two little kids, you know, anyone who's a parent that yeah. you see these officers standing stationary at the end of the hallway. They've got long rifles, they've got body armor on. Some of them even have those ballistic shields that would be able to offer them some, uh, you know, some semblance of protection against these, uh, you know, against oncoming bullets. They don't breach the doors. They don't go in. And in fact, the director said today that they didn't even attempt to see if the doors were unlocked. So we're unwinding the lies, really, is what it seems to be from this police chief down there in Uvalde, Texas, who simply, you know, and, and it's something that Lou, that you and I have talked about, where it, it feels though America has lost something, whether it's courage, where it's that sense of human agency, we've, we've put people into this mindset of we're supposed to be waiting for guidance or we're waiting for someone on high to tell us what to do when when deep down we know what the right thing is to do and we shouldn't be just waiting to do as we're told and yet that seems to be what they're doing here is that they took a couple of shots from inside he made the decision as the director said today he said you made the decision to put the officers lives over the lives of the children you stood there and waited when gave him free reign to be able to kill these children and you didn't respond with all of the lessons learned, all of the training that's gone in in the past 20 years since Columbine, and he called it an abject failure. Rule number one is go to the shooter instantly with children involved in a public school or a private school, any school. It's the first rule. And they've learned that. It was reinforced at Parkland uh, it, uh, as well. I mean, this is just outrageous. But in Texas... Don't mess with Texas. Are you kidding me? An entire department stands down. Jack, my first reaction on this was, you know, God bless that uh, young woman with her two kids who rushed yes. in there, told everybody to get the hell out of her way, and she got in there and got her kids. The Border Patrol, off-duty Border Patrol uh, agent, who was called by his wife about uh, their kids, he grabbed a shotgun from the barber where he's getting his hair cut and rushed in there and took care of business. Uh, and, and his kid 
mercifully was safe. Other parents tried to rush and were, were held back. It is just a sickening, sorrowful uh, moment, uh, tragedy uh, in this country's history. It's just, this isn't just Valdi, As you say, this is America, and we've got to do better, and we've got to ex- demand better, especially of those who are wearing a badge and carrying a gun as police officers, law enforcement officers everywhere in the country. Uh, your thoughts about what will happen now? Uh, you know, the other part of this is, Jack, I think about the officers, the command officers under that chief. How could they let that man say that? How could they not simply take care of business initiative on their own? It's just, I, I mean, I'm just stunned by it. Well, what's even stunning to me is is that, Lou, you, you look at the history of this country and, you know, in in times past when something like this would have happened, you would have seen the police, the, the chief of police resign, right, and realize what had happened and said, you know what, I'm going to take responsibility for this. It, this happened on my watch. These failures are my failures. And yet he hasn't done that. In fact, apparently the same chief of police was up for the city council in the recent election. He was elected. So now he's also a member of the city council. Oh, he's my sit- Lord. He's sitting there on the city council helping the city. Uh, they hired a law firm. They're fighting the freedom of information requests to uh, people are asking now for because ne- once we realized that, you know, think, think of where we've gone on this story, right? We started on the story with Governor Abbott praising the response of the police because yep. the briefing that he was given, the after action report, was that they had engaged the shooter, they ran in, they defeated the barricade and went in and saved the day, right? And so Abbott praising the response of law enforcement now we're starting to unwind these lies and realize that this was the last thing you should ever want to to praise. We're, we're talking, I've got the article here from Texas Tribune. There were two closed doors and a wall uh, between the officers and the and the 18-year-old with an AR-15. Uh, they had a Halligan bar. And a Halligan bar is, that's an act like, it's a forcible entry tool. It's the thing firefighters use. They had that on their, on their person. They had ballistic shields. They had plenty of firepower, multiple long rifles, M4s. And some of those officers were itching to go. But it was this chief of police who refuses to resign, who's fighting to get all of this information out. So now we know why he's trying to block the footage, right? Um, it's not because of just the horrific nature of it. He doesn't want to expose sources and methods or operational procedures. It's because it seems that the more footage we're getting of this, the more of it shows officers standing there stationary for almost a full hour, about 52 minutes, uh, while this killing was going on. You know, I don't know how many police officers were there. I did think it was unusual when the first reports were that the Border Patrol had a number of agents there. And I'm asking, where the hell are the police? Uh, And the police never did show up, in point of fact. There were a lot of police officers there, but the police never showed up. I mean, it was was just a disaster from – it's just stunning to me that there isn't anybody in that town that isn't telling that that police chief to take off the damn badge and get the hell out of office. Uh, this shouldn't take uh, this shouldn't take a lot of deep thought on the part of those parents. Uh, all of those people have been betrayed by that police department uh, and that chief. And I and I know that we're going to hear. Oh, there are a lot of good officers. There were no good officers there that day who didn't take care of business. And it's that simple, in my opinion. Yours, Jack. Well, I think that's right, and I think we've gotten to a point in our country where. 
we will publicly shame somebody, you know, if we, if they have a, a bad tweet, you know, from five years ago, or if they, they right. misspeak or they, you know, they use a word they shouldn't have. That's that we use public shame for political correctness now, but we don't really have any public shame towards the ability of our public elected leaders to be able to perform in their jobs. Because we used to have a country where something like this happened that that chief would never be able to show his face in town anymore. And that's the way it should be because we should hold people accountable for their successes and for their failures. This is clearly a failure. One of the one of the things that's so striking to me about this story as I go through the timeline is they they talk about the uh, the Facebook live stream that was started by one of the parents at 11:45. 11:45 is only about 12 minutes from when the shooter actually entered the school. That's how small this community is. That's how tight-knit this community is, this town, that you could be there within, you heard there's a problem at the school, you're there within 10 minutes. And I remember thinking, boy, I, I work about an hour from my, you know, where I live. I don't I would never be able to be there within 10 minutes. That's how small of a community this is. So, and the, and the by the way, the director is going through as well and, and, and going through the list of, this shooter, like we saw in Parkland, like we saw in other cases, was known to law enforcement. He was a known quantity. He was someone that had been on the radar, uh, you know, killing animals and committing abuse to animals, walking around with a bag of dead cats and things in the past, right? He's someone that local law enforcement knew probably shouldn't have had access to firearms. Absolutely. And yet, prior to that, they didn't do anything about it. And neither did the school, neither did anyone in the community. Uh, the fact is, this this young man, mentally ill, obviously sick, uh, his parents, both of them, from a broken home, but both his biological father and his biological mother are, are felons, as is his grandfather. Anybody looking for a recipe for a disaster for a young person, this kid was in that environment and the schools didn't as i say no one apparently uh wanted to step up and do the right thing and bring this kid to help uh when he was even much younger uh it's a tragic story but this is not a story about guns this is a story about a cowardly police department it's a story about a mentally ill young man uh who instead of getting treatment was able to buy a couple of guns. It, it's just a sorry, sorry uh, situation. There's a uh, there's a line in uh, C.S. Lewis, and uh, uh, for folks who haven't read C.S. Lewis, I highly, highly recommend where he says, "We we make men without chests and expect them of them virtue and enterprise. We laugh at honor and are shocked to find traitors in our midst. We castrate and build bid the geldings be fruitful." And I, I love this, this idea of the men without chests, right? Yeah. We're, we're creating men without chests or we vilify masculinity. We vilify mascu uh, manliness. We call it, it's called toxic masculinity. We're told, yeah. you know, men shouldn't be doing that. You know, I, I think we could have used a little bit of toxic masculinity in that school that day. Yeah, a lot of it in, in, in point of fact. And, and and by the way, in all fairness, uh, there there are women who carry guns and and wear badges. I I would hope that they would have stood up and done something, but no one there, uh, man, woman, 
stepped up. And that is, and to your earlier point, that is what is so scary right now about the America we live in. We know that we're, we're losing our way when we have to uh, listen to a secretary of defense talk more about gender and uh, trans treatments uh, and, and wokeness than we're hearing from him on strategic positioning of the of our fleets uh, of our uh, our air force our troops there's no explanation for 102,000 of our troops on the eastern flank in Europe uh, other than the fact that President Biden sent them there, where there's the the American people are not demanding anything of their government. Uh, it, it's uh, even those who are dependent upon it, whether it's for welfare, for whatever it may be. It, it's a sorry, sorry moment in our history. Well, we, we've become this nation of we say we build the system and we just need to fix the system and we, we don't look at outcomes anymore. We don't look at results. We're not, we're not pragmatic. We don't look at what's happening. We'll argue about things that happened hundreds of years ago, 200 years ago, but we won't talk about the violence that's going on in our cities. Um, you mentioned the military. You know, As a prior Navy officer, I look at the 7th Fleet and people ask about well, you know, Indo-Pacific Command, that was I, was, I was a Seventh Fleet sailor. I was a China guy. That was my focus. And they say, well, what do we need to do? You know, China just, China just launched their third aircraft carrier last week. Um, it's called the Fujian. The Fujian is the province that's directly across from Taiwan. Right. And, you know, this is how they celebrate Pride Month, right? They were launching a brand new, com- this one for the first time, completely domestically produced in China. Um, 100% their own systems, their own technology, the most high-tech carrier they've had. They're going to be putting that in the seas right around the island of Taiwan. And so people ask me, they say, well, you know, what should we do to defend our allies in Taiwan? How do we, you know, how do we protect them if China uh, goes to uh, create some kind of kinetic warfare in Taiwan across the Taiwan Strait, only about 60 miles nautically, or, um, or they enact a blockade of some sort? And I said, the main thing we should do is fix the Navy. Just fix the Navy and you will create a strategic deterrence factor so that the Chinese will be looking at that situation and say, you know what? I don't want to tangle with that Seven Fleet. I don't want to mess with those guys. But when they're launching brand new aircraft carriers with state-of-the-art technology with all the fanfare in the world, and we're over here arguing over what a woman is and uh, you know, marching with our soldiers with pride flags and sailors with pride flags and everyone's going to their wokeness training, right? You're not preparing to defend our allies. You're not preparing to defend our interests. And keep in mind, and, and people say, well, what's the point of Taiwan? Well, Taiwan is two things. It's Silicon Valley West, and it's also the strategic maritime uh, shipping lanes. The shipping lanes across Taiwan is where something like 85% of the world's commerce travels through right now. So, yes, I, we, do, we don't want China to just be completely in control of that. President Biden has said only one thing correctly in his entire presidency, and that was the, he said we have commitments to defend Taiwan. And that was immediately with uh, withdrawn and talked uh, and uh, taken off the board. Uh, and, and what's what's to me uh, ironic, funny, uh, and sad at the same time is that the only thing he said that made any strategic sense in foreign policy was when he said Taiwan must be preserved. Indeed, he is right. And the unfortunate part about it is that. Uh, Taiwan is nestled uh, inconveniently 
uh, between the South China Sea uh, and the East China Sea, uh, and uh, about 80 miles at its closest point, uh, Taiwan off of the coast of mainland China. It's not the easiest strategic uh, enterprise to defend it, but defend it we we must because otherwise 60% of the world's uh, ocean-going traffic uh, will be under the influence and control of the Chinese. All right, all that, all that, uh, all the commercial goods. So every, you know, we have this this great system of globalization. I'm saying that sarcastically, but the people who created the system of globalization made it so that we are dependent on the maritime shipping lanes. Those maritime shipping lanes cross directly through. Uh, they call it the Luzon Strait. So that's the strait on the other side of Taiwan, the eastern right. coast, and uh, Luzon, which is the northernmost island of the Philippines. So that's and then down through the Strait of Malacca and the South China Sea. So you're talking about not only those goods, but oil, the flow of oil to and from the Middle East, from all of these situations. And so it's it's wonderful to me to look at that we we outsourced our energy, uh, right? We outsourced our energy production to the Middle East. We outsourced our manufacturing to Asia, and then we decided that we we're just going to cede maritime dominance in Asia to the communist Chinese party of Beijing. And we don't really seem to have an answer for why things are going wrong, but we're going to demonize uh, both Russia and China. So apparently it seems like the foreign policy um, outcomes of this are that we are driving Russia and China together at the same time and making enemies of them both. And that will come to be seen, I believe, years from now as the greatest geopolitical blunder in American history. Uh, and it has very specific roots uh, in, in the actions, the behavior of the Biden administration, which for months ignored uh, Vladimir Putin's clear declaration uh, that he would not uh, tolerate uh, NATO interfering with Ukraine. Uh, and as they continued to invite, uh, the Biden administration continued to invite uh, Zelensky uh, to come into NATO, they simply put uh, Putin in a position where, uh, in my opinion, he was compelled to act in his, what he considered his nation's interest. I'm not excusing it. I'm in no way endorsing it. And I absolutely abhor what he has done. And I think he is you know, repulsive beyond measure. But what Biden has done in foreign policy is to invite disaster and tragedy again. He did so uh, numerous times. Uh, after the invasion and continues to do so. We put $60 billion in aid into Ukraine without any understanding of what we're doing and what the outcomes, to speak to your point about outcomes, because this administration, like so many uh, Democratic administrations, uh, doesn't speak to communicate and to clarify and to articulate vision. Uh, It obfuscates, and that is what the language has become, and that has that has uh, cascaded down uh, all levels of government. Our officials no longer feel that they have to speak clearly and plainly. Uh, they use language to avoid uh, understanding and meaning. And that is one of the reasons that officials like the police chief and Avaldi and the city council, too, apparently, uh, are still in place because no one is speaking plainly either to them. And we're not hearing anything, certainly, uh, direct and specific and concrete from them. 
Well, Lou, I think that's exactly right. And I, I just honored to hear you, t- uh, you break that all down for us because that's exactly right. It's uh, no accountability. Nobody takes responsibility for anything. You know, when you ask someone who's in charge all the way up to the president of the United States, you know, it used to be the buck stops here was on the desk for Truman. And uh, and now it's the buck stops wherever I say it stops. Right. Exactly. Uh, look, three three weeks ago, um, I returned home from Ukraine. I was there on the ground. I went down to the city of Odessa. We rode the rails uh, about 1,200 miles in total on these old 1950s era, uh, well, uh, 50 years old, I should say, or, or so Soviet trains with the uh, with the sleeper bunks in them, uh, riding at night to, uh, you know, had to black out all the windows, black out the lights to prevent, uh, prevent any Russian air assets or drones for knowing that there was a passenger train traveling underneath. And we then traveled from Odessa to the city of Mykolaiv, which is the last Ukrainian-held city before you get to Russian-occupied territory. And for all the chaos and the mismanagement that we could see there on the ground, the one thing that we couldn't see very much um, much clarity on was where exactly was the impact of this $60 billion that's being sent over? Because we saw volunteers coming from the West saying, um, oh, well, we want to help out on the front line. So we've bought some body armor and some helmets and we're going to throw it in the back, drive it to the front lines to deliver it to soldiers. Uh, my wife was talking to a nurse who was, you know, sort of in the back area that she said she volunteered, come over from Nashville and come all the way from Tennessee to help with the humanitarian efforts there, uh, COVID and just some of the other, you know, bevies of, of medical issues that come when you have the, uh, the mass movement of 3 million people at once. And my wife was saying, so how do you know, how are you compensated? She said, well, we're not compensated. She says, what I do is I go back to Nashville and then pick up a nursing gig for a couple of weeks or a couple of months, whatever I can find, make some money, and then go back to Ukraine. They're not being paid at all. Where's the money going? Yeah. It's, and we just uh, have learned that uh, Vladimir uh, uh, Zelensky, great American uh, uh, celebrity now, uh, he just... Uh, banned, outlawed the opposition party in Ukraine. So he's not exactly going in the direction that uh, uh, most of us would would uh, think or hope. Uh, and he is, however, though, living up to expectations, early expectations, given the level of corruption within Ukraine, which for some reason people seem to want to forget, particularly 40 Republican senators who voted for a no-fly zone even though that would have been a provocation uh, for direct conflict with Russia. Well, it really is interesting to me, and I've I've talked about this before on the the War Room podcast, where I feel like there's two groups of people when you look at this, that there's the, I call it the escalators versus the de-escalators. And when you're looking at these tensions on the two sides, uh, you, you broke it down magnificently about how the escalations rose to the point where Vladimir Putin made the decision to cross the line and to cross into with the invasion of Ukraine. But we're not hearing very, very many voices talk about how do we de-escalate this? How do we get to a situation where they'll pull back the advance? How do we get to a situation where the people who are caught in the middle of this, of this who are living there or have family members living there, elderly who can't get out of these places like Mariupol or Melitopol, uh, Kherson, Kharkov, are are trapped essentially and there's fighting going on right and they're through no fault of their own they're you know there's shells that are coming artillery missiles and uh both forces fighting back and forth my family's from poland so we could tell you all about that and 
when you look at it, what was so stunning to me was that when I was in Davos at the World Economic Forum, Dr. Henry Kissinger actually came out himself and said, we need to get to the point where we achieve a balance of power in Europe. You are never going to completely knock Russia out because Russia is always going to be either part of Europe or directly adjacent to Europe, right? They've been, they're there today. They were there yesterday. They'll be there tomorrow as uh, President Macron just said in France, no, you know, no con arch conservative uh, Emmanuel Macron. And so this, I, this understanding of that, we do have to live in a real world. We do have to understand that geopolitic at the end of the day does rule the roost. And for all the neoliberal moralizing of the Biden administration and Jake Sullivan and our, our Secretary of State, Tony Blinken, who seems completely AWOL at this point, I haven't you know heard a peep from him in months, uh, you know, he's got two, you know, two strikes on him now, the invasion of Ukraine and the collapse of Afghanistan. Uh, you can't seem to find any policy from the Biden administration that it actually is operable in the real world. Yeah, directly put, Jack, there, this administration isn't talking about diplomacy at all. In fact, when they had an opportunity after everything they had screwed up, uh, provoking the invasion, uh, misjudging Putin altogether. And uh, at the end of March, the war at that point, uh, um, no more than a, about a month uh, long, absolutely refused to let Zelensky negotiate with Putin. That was their prime opportunity to de-escalate, to negotiate. And yes, they would have had to give up the Donbass region. They would have had to give up eastern Ukraine. But do you know what? That's going to be the outcome of that, I am sure, irrespective. Now, it's only a question, of, is it eastern Ukraine or is it all of Ukraine? Well, Lou, from where, where I was sitting, we traveled to that port city of Odessa, that, that city you know founded by Catherine Great all the way back in the 1700s during the Russian Empire. So much history, so many battles that have been fought through that area. That's the last port city that Ukraine still controls on the Black Sea. Now, it's been mined and there's blockades, so they're not getting the grain, these 20 million tons of grain that they're trying to get out through that port. They can't get it through Odessa. That's the main port of Ukraine to begin with. So if they, they lose that city... Uh, which is, of course, right next to Transnistria and Moldova. It's the last port of Ukraine. If they lose that to the Russians or you know, go through the chain, right? If Russia is able to close off the Donbass, encircle and envelop the forces there, that almost gives them a free hand to then drive right through Mykolaiv, uh, cut off the Kherson Highway so you can bypass that city, um, cut them off from the rest of Ukraine. Then you go down to Odessa. If they are able to achieve that, you will get to a point where Ukraine now becomes a landlocked country, and they will have built a land bridge across the what was previously the entire southern coast of Ukraine. Yeah, it's it is uh, it is not yet hopeless, uh, but it is uh, one. Rec I, I think it would take a miracle to stave off the Russians much longer. Uh, they're just simply. There is one thing in this, uh, actually a number of developments. One of them is that uh, th that the Black Sea fleet, the Russian fleet, has uh, withdrawn, uh, has pulled back from the coast uh, because of the Harpoon missiles uh, That's right. that have been provided. 
uh, after losing most recently, I believe it was a, a tugboat uh, to them, but uh, not a great kill, but at least uh, something that the Ukrainians uh, couldn't have done before, but which the Russians understand very well will affect the the ability uh, in those littoral waters, uh, there would be just sitting ducks. Well, that's exactly right. And those harpoon missiles, um, you're correct in that they are they are an absolute lethal threat. They've taken out the the, the capital ship, the flagship of the Black Sea Fleet, the Moskva, um, one of the most one of Russia's most formidable ships up until uh, when it was taken down. But what they're doing with the harpoons now, because Ukraine lost their fleet, they don't have any ships left in the early stages of this war. They're having to build uh, trucks and vehicle implements to essentially jury rig the harpoon missiles to be able to to be affixed on the back of these trucks, then driving them into those littoral waters. So, of course, Russia's looking at that situation. They really want to take out uh, Odessa or at least neutralize Odessa so that they can't be driving these trucks back and forth with impunity, taking pot shots at the Russian Navy. Well, I, your thoughts, what, what does the future hold for Ukraine? I think they've they've been absolutely courageous. Seeing people fight for their homes, fight for their families is is always honorable. But I do think this is a situation where they need to find a diplomatic outcome as soon as possible to same off the because they will never win a war of attrition with Russia. No one has ever been able to to win a war of attrition with Russia, and it has been attempted by by Napoleon, by Hitler, by great armies. They, no one will ever defeat Russia in a war of tradition of attrition. It's just simply too vast, too large, too populous. And too strong. Uh, they are people forget they whatever else they have. They have sufficient uh, nuclear weapons to be, uh, at the very least, uh, uh, formidable. Uh, only the United States has a comparable arsenal and the capacity uh, uh, to go to nuclear war with them. Uh, it's a and they continue to talk about nuclear war, the Russians, uh, and hopefully we will not get anywhere near that uh, possibility. I want to turn, if we may here, uh, Jack, very quickly uh, as we wrap up, the, there's a little drumbeat now starting uh, with, after Manuel Lopez Obrador, the president of Mexico, started talking about a, a hemispheric uh, union, uh, much like uh, President, uh, president Bush was pushing years ago the North American Union. And now Obrador has started it. He started pushing it at the Summit of the Americas. Your thoughts? Well, I think this would be uh, horrific for the United States. This would be NAFTA on steroids. I mean, we talked before, we've outsourced our energy production to the Middle East. We've outsourced our manufacturing and our wealth base to Asia. This would essentially be outsourcing the rest of our markets to South America and Latin America. And hey, if you're if you're the president of Mexico, if you're one of the presidents of, uh, of Ecuador or Guatemala, this probably sounds like a great deal to you, uh, economic integration, because you know the very next thing, Lou, that they would push for is a, a currency, a single currency to be used yeah. in that trade block the exact same way that the European Union did with the euro. And what we're also hearing out of the Fed is potentially the idea that this main this Amero, if they call it the Amero, wouldn't even necessarily be a hard currency; that it may be a central bank digital currency, oh, yes. a cryptocurrency controlled by uh, an Afor yet to be named um, uh, central bank. You know, the Fed having control over over all this uh, this area right now. 
Anytime that we've seen the centralization of government power in transnational organizations, whether it be the European Union out of Brussels, whether it be the World Economic Forum, whether it be the United Nations, it always leads to unintended consequences. It always breaks the law of unintended consequences, and it always leads to diminishing outcomes for the American people. I think we should be rolling back things like this and going back to a system of actual trade with bilateral partners, but trade that's in the interest of our nation. And there was a certain president, I remember, who had a little bit of an orange skin tone that used to talk a lot about that just a few years ago. Uh, vividly and persuasively. And uh, and he, his vision, uh, by the way, held the day. And now, of course, Biden is doing everything he can to reverse uh, what was uh, an immense uh, amount of progress over a course of four years. Uh, Jack, Great to have you with us. Let it be also noted, uh, if we may, ladies and gentlemen, uh, that the most recent cryptocurrency crisis, uh, the onset was, in my judgment, when Janet Yellen, esteemed Treasury Secretary, uh, and Jerome Powell, uh, Chairman of the Federal Reserve, started talking seriously about a government-backed digital currency. Once that madness got seeped to their uh, uh, to their level, uh, it, it was it was bound to happen. Precisely. Yes. Uh, Jack, great to talk with you. Always uh, instructive, illuminating, and uh, uh, invigorating. Absolute honor, Lou. Thank you so much. Thanks, everybody, for being with us. Here tomorrow will be Peter Navarro, former special assistant to President Trump. He is the latest victim of the politically corrupt FBI and the outrageous Marxist-Dim Soviet-style January 6th committee for refusing a committee subpoena and asserting executive privilege, Peter was arrested by the FBI, put in handcuffs and leg irons, and thrown into a cell. Does that sound like America to you? Have we lost that America? We'll take that up here tomorrow. Please join us here on The Great America Show. Till then, God bless you, and God bless America.